The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or lifehousechurch.org. Netflix and chill. To be honest with you, I didn't even know that was a thing. Don't judge. Just saying I didn't know the expression. So which is it? Hashtag me too or 50 shades of gray? Because the way I read it, the way I understand it, you can't have it both ways. Meaning you can't have a movement that's all about standing up against sexual predators and sexual harassers and saying this is wrong and Hollywood leading the charge to speak out against abusing and misusing people to please your own sexual interests. And then simultaneously, we have an all-time best-selling trilogy book series that's all about trending love and, an, and a blockbuster trilogy movie series called Fifty Shades of Grey. Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, if, if you're not familiar with it, let me just kind of quickly bring you up to speed. Um, it's, you know, not only this book series, but this movie trilogy where it focuses on, and, and kind of like a typical, exactly what you'd expect of a boy meets girl love story of Christian Grey and Anna Steele. And here's kind of the backdrop, right? Um, here's this you know, powerful, uh, bus- wealthy businessman who meets and then makes a, you know, a, a relationship arrangement with Anna Steele. And then it, basically as the story unfolds, you have a story of significant sexual abuse and use that focuses on sadomasochism, the finding pleasure in someone else's pain. And in reality, it's a toxic story of severe sexual abuse. And so I'll be honest with you, even reading the research on this stuff, I had a hard time thinking, how am I even going to work this into a sermon? Because here are the lessons that you quickly grasp or you quickly hear, you quickly see when you start paying attention to this movie. Now, hey, look, Please, I'm going to disclaim some things several times throughout this sermon. I am not trying to come out and judge you if you've read or you've enjoyed or you've watched these movies, but I do want to challenge how you think about them. I do want to challenge you a little bit, and so bear with me before you just kind of throw, throw in the towel and be like, I don't want to watch this. If you're with us online, before you click off or, uh, and you just turn me off, uh, would you just stick with me for a moment? I want to walk you through some really obvious lessons that are taught in Fifty Shades of Grey, and the last movie being Fifty Shades Freed, which in reality is anything but freedom. Here are some of the lessons. Um, We're going to pop them up here. That your tormented past justifies taking your anger out on others. So, So Christian Grey excuses his abuse of Anna by saying, by by basically explaining that he's justified because of the pain and the hurt from his past. Here's another uh, lesson that you're going to learn. Wealth can excuse someone's toxic or abusive behavior. 
Here's, here's another lesson that you might learn. If you stay with an abuser long enough, they'll change. That's kind of the whole message of the final movie, right? It's kind of hinting at the fact that if you're in an abusive relationship, if you're experiencing domestic violence, if you stick around long enough, maybe they'll actually change and then you, your life can write some amazing Hollywood love story. Let, let me give you a couple other quick lessons. Love and affections can be bought. Think about it. Right? Isn't that the whole point of the trilogy? Money and gifts by leverage in love. Or, or how about this one? Number five, stalking and controlling behaviors are gestures of affection instead of red flags. Hold up. Sounds good. But he, here's, here's what this one's saying. What we're saying is someone's so passionately pursuing you that they love you. And oh, that means, no, those are serious red flags. Okay, number six, uh, possessiveness and manipulation are loving qualities. It's at least what Hollywood's saying with this. And then number seven, it's romantic to ignore or enjoy the pain of others for personal pleasure. And number eight, it's acceptable for sex to be used as a weapon. And then number nine, coercion and force are expressions of desire rather than abuse. Here, here's the deal. Anna Steele, the, the leading female actress in the movie series, book series, she should be the leading voice in the hashtag MeToo movement. And, and I get it. I realize many of you, you're not even aware of kind of what I'm talking about, so just stick with me here. Uh, and, and in fact, I imagine that the woman who is playing Anna Steele we don't even know what goes behind, on behind the scenes in real life. For all we know, as what's coming out of Hollywood, she very well may be experiencing the very thing that, we're, that they're protesting through the hashtag MeToo movement. Here's, here's my point. Movies like this, and then the whole expression of Hollywood, is glamorizing and profiting from the very thing they're claiming to stand up against. And here's, where it le here's the next step then. Then it glamorizes and normalizes incredibly unhealthy, abusive behavior along with porn and the porn industry. Maybe I haven't got your attention yet, so let me take this a step further. There's a tremendous benefit for them to glamorize, normalize, trivialize, and profit from the porn industry because it's far bigger than you realize. Porn industry is a $16 billion industry. Again, maybe that doesn't mean anything to you, so let me put it in the context of maybe numbers and ideas you will understand. That would be more money than the NFL, National Football, the NBA, National ba Professional Basketball, and Major League Baseball combined. All right, so many of you, you grew up thinking that baseball was the American pastime. No, it's not. Porn is. $16 billion is more money than the U.S. government gives total in foreign aid. Total, annually. So you want to increase U.S. impact around the globe? 
take the profits that are going into the porn industry and funnel it into nations in need, funnel it into rescuing people out of all kinds of vices and lifestyles, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and literally you could more than double the U.S. investment into foreign aid simply by taking the profit out of the porn industry. And, and so here's what you should be recognizing right now. There is a lot of money to be made by soliciting you and getting you trapped into and hooked on porn, including watching movies like Fifty Shades. Again, please know, I, this whole message is not about like me telling you don't go watch this movie, right? Like I'm going a little bit deeper here. I want to go a little further than that. But here's what happens. People watch movies like this, and, and, and some people go, man, I want to experience those kind of sexual exploits. And then others go, I want to be pursued and loved with that kind of passion and that kind of intensity. And people create fantasies about experiencing that or being loved like that. Now, take, take it a step further. The porn industry. Do you know that 88% of porn content is abusive, meaning they're videoing abusive pornographic experiences. 88%. Do you know on one website alone, one porno, pornographic website, they calculated that people had spent 4.3 billion hours viewing. That's just one. And there are tens of thousands of these websites. One website, 4.3 billion hours. I get it. That doesn't mean much to you. L let me calculate it another way. You know how many years that is? 491,000 years spent on just that one website. Still, maybe that doesn't catch your attention. That's three, three, no, 3,900 lifetimes. Quite, okay, so right now our national conscience is horrified because tragically 17 young people were, were gunned down. Innocent lives, right? Every year, 3,900 lives are devastated and destroyed and completely lost on one website. And we don't even notice. Nobody even talks about it. In fact, it's kind of like a hush-hush because nobody knows what to say. The last thing we want to do is censor this, right? And so let me take it a step further, right? Uh, talk about profitability. Talk about any of this stuff, right? 80% of people caught in sex trafficking were victimized specifically for porn purposes. That means the next time someone you know clicks on porn, they are literally giving to sex trafficking. They're investing into more people's lives being ruined in sex trafficking. Why? Because the, many, the demand for sex trafficking is fueled by porn. That, that's the leading purpose of it. So they use porn to desensitize women that are trapped in this lifestyle, getting them used to what should be expected of them, and then they use them to create porn. 80%. 25% of all online searches, including through mobile phones, are for the express purpose of someone searching for pornography. Now keep that in mind when you realize that three quarters of your kids have access to a cell phone and most of you wouldn't even know how to put parental controls on it. 63% of men, 36% of women have viewed, admit to having viewed porn at work. By 18 years old, 97% of boys, 80% of girls have seen porn. The average age of, of their first exposure to pornography is 11 years old. Average. Average. And the average age of someone having their first sexual experience, I mean going all the way, 
is 16 years old. Maybe that's not a big deal to you. Maybe that's normal for you. All right, here's what studies show. The younger someone has a sexual experience, the more likely they are to abuse drugs and alcohol, the more likely they are to step into a destructive lifestyle, make destructive life choices, and potentially even leads to suicide. So meanwhile, so we've desensitized desensitized ourselves to realizing that we have 16-year-olds that are playing with loaded guns metaphorically speaking, and yet a national outcry is the other direction. Meanwhile, we've got a national epidemic, a disease, a destructive force that's plaguing our nation and our globe. So what, what is my point? Where am I going with this? Simply making a statement, a challenge to you, that maybe we need to rethink our approach to these issues. And before you feel and react like I'm somehow calling you out. I am not. But I do believe that as a church, I have a responsibility at least to be a shepherd and see people as sheep to be protected. And I feel like it's a little bit of my responsibility to wave a giant flag of warning and say this is incredibly dangerous and destructive and you might not even realize it's tearing your life apart. In fact, did you realize that couples that view porn together They have a 200% or more likely uh, percentage of likely ending up in divorce. Meaning the divorce rate increases 200% if couples view porn together. This is shocking. It's horrifying. And so where do we go with this? So I want to shift gears. I want to take you back 2,000 years to a totally different context. Maybe because it'll give you a chance to take a little bit of breath for a moment here. And I want to talk to you about a passage that the Apostle Paul wrote in a letter he wrote to the church in Corinth. Uh, The city of Corinth was a city known for these issues, for sex trafficking, sexual exploitation. Why? Because in the center of the city was the temple to Aphrodite, the the Greek goddess of sexual fulfillment. And the way they worshiped her was by um, sex trafficking, bringing in prostitutes that worked the temple and people would come from all over the world to go and worship Aphrodite through expressing their sexual fulfillment or sexual desires. So the entire industry of the city built on sex trafficking and sexual exploitation. And the Apostle Paul went and started a church there. And after he started the church, he moved on. And later he wrote a letter to the church. And it's found in the Bible. It's called 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a chapter where he's writing about what real love should look like. In contrast to trending love. He said, this is what real love looks like. And so I want to just read this passage to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 and 5, where he writes this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Now, when Paul is writing this, he's not specifically writing, talking about sexuality, sexual intimacy. Uh, He's not talking about porn or human trafficking or or prostitution. But he is writing to a church in a city where that is kind of the meta-narrative of the entire region. And so you can imagine that this is what's on his mind as he's addressing what it looks like to love from the perspective of God versus the perspective of the city of Corinth. And so there is a, there's a big idea that jumps off the pages of 1 Corinthians 13 that we should be able to apply to our lives, and it's this. This is what I want you to take away. So, hey, I, I warned you all that this was going to be kind of a PG-13 message. I've probably already been a little bit more direct with you than you thought I was going to be. So let me give you a, like an, another side of this. So how do we flip the script? How do we turn it around? And, and I, want, I want to give you the idea here, and this is it. 
And hopefully you can write this down in your program. There's a place to take notes. Feel free to, you know, get out your smartphone or tablet. And this is what I want you to type in. It's a big idea that I just wrote out for you guys. Here's the deal. Selfless love is the key to great sex. Now, some of you, just as I said it, you're like, I cannot believe I am hearing this in church. I get it. But I also hope that you realize that what I just shared is not an attempt to be prudish. We're not trying to, we're not trying to uh, be the champions to legislate morality. This is about people of faith discovering what it looks like to integrate your faith with the entire rest of your life. What does it mean to be a Jesus follower? And how does being a Jesus follower express itself in the way I love, in the way I live, in the way I experience romance, in what I view online, in the way I love someone else, in the way I even experience my sexuality? And so the takeaway, the challenge is this, that selfless love is the key to great sex. Now, don't think that the goal of selfless love is great sex. You don't, you're not selfless in your love so that you can have great sex. It's that great sex is simply a product, a byproduct of being selfless in your love. So why are we not this way? Why is it either hashtag me too or 50 shades of gray claiming to be 50 shades freed? Why is it that most of us, the moment I start talking about this issue, what you're feeling is shame, regret, hurt, and pain? Why is that? Well, let let me try to unpack this a little bit for you because you and I are fundamentally, spiritually misaligned. We're broken. We didn't ask to be broken. We didn't want to be broken, but you and I were born broken. We were fractured from birth, meaning because of this spiritual misalignment, you and I have a spiritual corruption, a spiritual disease that has sent us in the wrong direction. So from the moment we were born, we have this metastasized spiritual disease that has caused us to reject God and embrace our own selfish desires, meaning we idolize our own interests. We make a God of what we want. We become selfish. And when we're driven by selfishness, we pursue the very things that will destroy us. And we don't even realize it because it feels right. It feels good. And so we convince ourselves that whatever feels good must be good. Because I want it, it must be right. Because it's at the core of the way I was born. Because it's at the core of my identity that must be who I am and it must be correct. Meanwhile, what, we, what none of us kind of were, were realized was that from the very beginning, we were all fundamentally broken. All of our desires are broken. All of our identities are fractured. Every one of us are heading in the wrong direction of what is best for our lives. But the good news is that God did not leave us rejected and abandoned for what is worst and destructive, sin. God stepped in to rescue us. Sin destroys, devastates, ruins our lives, and leads us toward an eternal ruin. But God intervened in our story. Again, not to give us great sex, God intervened in our story because he saw every one of us headed toward ruin, and so he intervened by becoming one of us. Jesus Christ stepped into our world, took on our sin guilt, our sin shame, our sin 
debt that would lead toward eternal judgment, a death sentence. Jesus took our shame, our guilt, our death sentence on himself so that when he died, he died once for all so that anyone who believes in Jesus by faith is forgiven of their sins and given new life. This should be incredible. This should be life transforming. Many people who castigate the church, who say the church is just judgmental or the Bible is a list of rules and laws, they miss the whole message. The Bible isn't about rules and regulations and restrictions. It's not about putting sexual restraint on you. It's about a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ that forgives us of sin and offers us a new life through God's spirit. When God's spirit enters into our spirit, we are changed and transformed. And I want you to know this message was not a bait and switch. I didn't, I didn't talk, start talking about great sex just so I could present the gospel, but I want you to know this. None of the rest works outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Meaning, unless you experience selfless love as revealed to the person of Jesus Christ, the rest is a mess. It will never work. Now, I'm not saying it's always going to work even when you do believe in Jesus. But I'm saying only Jesus can transform us from a selfish way of loving to a selfless way of loving. And selfless love is the key to great sex. It's the key to discovering your true identity. Disclaimer, the church, the Bible, Christianity, this is not about being bigots, pointing fingers, telling people, that you know, we want to legislate rules and laws. We're simply saying, we believe that there is a best way to live your life in alignment with God's purposes. And I want to bring you back to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, where the, or 13, where the Apostle Paul is kind of walking through this. And I want to show you kind of what, what does that selfless love look like? So he starts and he says, love is patient, which means love doesn't quickly... Uh, get angry. Love doesn't quickly fly off the handle. Love is willing to, um, rather than pursue instant gratification, delay its own wants and desires. And then he continues, love is kind. Love cares. Love is sensitive. Love is interested in the needs of others rather than its own needs. It's kind. It doesn't look to hurt or abuse or put others down. It's not looking to humiliate anyone. Love serves and gives and lifts up. And he continues, love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. So this whole idea of envy and pride, right? Jealousy and pride. Love does not take what isn't its, right? It doesn't envy and it is not proud. It doesn't flaunt what should stay in private. Hopefully you're quickly connecting the dots between how this kind of love should affect how you view sexuality, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. Let's just stop right there. Meaning, love, does, love puts the needs of others above its own selfishness. Paul, in this moment, is making a direct contrast between eros love and agape love. Now, you, maybe you're not familiar with those terms, but you kind of heard it, and you're like, wait, that sounds a lot like, okay. Eros love and agape love are two terms that, in the Greek, is used to define love. In fact, the Greek has a couple different words for love. We only have one. We say love. But they would say eros love, which refers to this erotic, self-seeking, self-fulfilling love. Agape love is this. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying love, agape love is not self-seeking. It's selfless. In fact, this is the key. This passage, that, that verse right there is the key to what he's saying. And interestingly, it's very powerful when you're applying it to the city of Corinth because in the Greek, in Greek mythology, 
The word eros comes from the god eros. So in Corinth, which is the temple to Aphrodite, in Greek mythology, she has a son, Eros, and he becomes the Greek god of sexual desire. His counterpart in Roman mythology is Cupid. Cupid, this cute little, um, you know, whatever he is, that flies around with a bow and arrow. Here's the point. Here's what you don't realize, right? You can hire Cupid or Eros to go shoot somebody with an arrow, and they are then captured and forced into relationship sexually with you. They become your captive. It's literally an ancient version of Fifty Shades of Grey. And Paul is saying, in contrast to Eros love, you can have this agape love, which rather than taking what you want in order to fulfill your own desires, true love should be selfless and generous and giving. Okay, so now let's apply this to our lives in our relationships, and even to our sexuality. How does this then apply? Meaning, what can I do with it? Well, I want to jump back a few chapters in Paul's writing because now he's going to give us some very specific instruction about our sexuality. So I want to read you this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 through 20. Paul's writing, he says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. And let me keep going here. I think there's more to this. Um, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And what is Paul's point? What, what is he trying to say as he's writing this? He, he's writing to people that are not in a marriage relationship, and he's saying, I'm challenging you not to get engaged into sexual immorality. You are not your own. This is not about you having your needs met. This is about being selfless in your love. And, and what's the point? Selfless love patiently guards God's best. That was a big statement. So I want to repeat that, and I want you to catch that. I want, to, I want you to write that down. Selfless love patiently guards God's best. What you heard was God's a killjoy. God's trying to keep me from having a lot of fun. Meanwhile, the statistics say that going out and doing what you think is fun will probably destroy you. and will destroy a lot of people around you. And what we didn't realize was all along the way, God's best is better than anything you can experience. When we follow God's plan for our life, we are actually experiencing the very best for our lives. We're not being robbed of anything. We're being given an incredible gift. So check this out. How do I then walk in selfless love, which patiently guards God's best? So outside of marriage, I want to challenge you. If you are not in a marriage relationship, then here is the application for you to apply selfless love by patiently guarding God's best for your life, which means don't see how close you can get to doing the wrong thing. Live your life experiencing God's very best for you. And so what do I mean by that? I want to challenge you. I'm going to just give you the, the, the disclaimer here. This isn't about laws or legislating morality. This isn't a statement we make to every single person in the community. I'm talking to those of you that you want to experience God's best for your life. S sexual intimacy is best experienced and given by God to be enjoyed in the marriage covenant relationship between a man and a woman. 
That's God's design. Now, we live in a broken, messed up world where that design has not been necessarily lived out by nearly everybody. But can I challenge you? Would you consider taking a step toward God's best by, by not just restraining your desires, but, but here's, here's, right, because you're desiring it because you think it's good for you. Say, no, why would I eat, why, if you think about a buffet, right, why would I eat this junk when I could have filet mignon? So I'm willing to forego the Whopper right now because I want filet mignon later. In God's, in God's economy, later is better than now when it, means restraint, when it means waiting for what God's best is rather than enjoying what might feel good in the moment, which means for some of you, you need to put some boundaries around your sexual fulfillment. Young people, well, I'll talk to anybody here. If you are not in that marriage relationship, you should have boundaries around how you're going to express yourself sexually. In fact, a, a principle that should apply to both married and unmarried people would be this. Your spouse is the only, I don't want to say this. Your spouse is the only place for the expression of your, success, of your sexual fulfillment. Your spouse is the only person through whom you should experience sexual fulfillment. So if you are not married, then you're waiting for your spouse. Here's the deal. Let me, I want to make sure this isn't missed. In our culture, we primarily focus on people's sexual identity, meaning your identity is primarily your sexuality. And that does not align with God's word. You are not first and foremost a sexual, you're not a sexual person. You are first and foremost in the image, created in the image of God. You are first a person designed and made by God, which means then, if that's true, here's what happens in our culture. We glamorize sexual experience as if, if you are not currently experiencing the joys and pleasures and passions of sex, you are half a person. You're missing out. You are not experiencing. In fact, the worst thing that could ever happen in our culture is you to be a virgin or you to not be sexually fulfilled. Are you kidding me? That's not consistent with scripture. Look, I'm, I'm not against this. I'm all for people experiencing sexual film, but just within the boundaries of God's best. But here's what I want you to hear. You are not missing out. You can be a whole and complete person in the eyes of God and in your life. You can live your life purpose whether or not you ever experience sexual fulfillment. I know that doesn't fit with the culture we live in, but look, our culture's teaching some pretty broken, messed up things. So now let me take one more step, and I am bringing this in for landing. Let me give you another passage of Scripture. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 wrote this, Since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. Imagine that. Guys, come on. Step up. You got a responsibility to fulfill your marital duty to your wives. You guys are cheating your wife. Your wives are saying, come on, follow through on your duty. I just thought, I, I got a kick out of reading it. I, and likewise, the wife to her husband. And then he continues, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so the point Paul is making is this. You should get married and go on your honeymoon. And you should enjoy it. And you should have a great time. And don't, don't hold back. Don't cheat your spouse. Don't rob them. So let me repeat it again. Your spouse is, your only, is the only person through whom you can experience sexual fulfillment according to God's best. 
Let me take it a step further. That means before marriage, sex is like a diamond awaiting its proper setting. Don't, don't get caught up in porn and self-stimulation toward personal fulfillment because you're cheating yourself and you're robbing yourself of God's best. Now in marriage, I'm, I'm gonna walk through this really quickly, but don't miss this. That means that great sex, which is experienced through selfless love, right? Let, let, let's make sure we don't miss this, right? Selfless love in marriage should look like this. That means selfless love shares sex freely within marriage. Christians aren't prudes. Not at all. Trying to <laughs> what immediately popped into my head was, I wanted to say I have five kids, but <laughs> I heard another pastor talking about this and he said, he has six kids and he said, it's not that I love kids, I love my wife. <laughs> and uh, all right, so poor, poor Laura, she's like packing up the kids and walking out right now. Um, all right. So can I just walk through some quick principles for you? Um, here's the deal. How, how do you experience great sex in marriage by being selfless? Go back to what Paul wrote. He said, love is patient, love is kind. It does not, it's not full of jealousy or pride. It doesn't seek its own desire. So let, let's break that down. That means um, great sex begins before the bedroom. That means, guys, you, you've got to romance and win the, your wife's heart through good communication and care before you ever get to the bedroom. Touch her heart and her mind before you touch her body. And what it'll do is it'll plant seeds of romance and passion that will grow and will lead to great sex. It also means that you should spend time adoring your spouse. Husbands, fall in love over and over with your spouse. Wives, affirm, encourage. Tell your husband why you love him and what you love about him. Build him up. When he feels strong and healthy and in your eyes, you'll be surprised how strong and vibrant he can get in bed. <laughs> be creative. Don't just go through dull routine. Here's what's happening in dull routine. You're, you're getting trapped in a lie as if the only goal is just to climax and get what you can out of it. Be creative. Focus more on their needs than your own. Say, how can I increase pleasure in them? And here's a rule. The more you focus on increasing the pleasure in them, the more you are fulfilled. It's a trick that the world doesn't want to tell you. They think, they tell you it's all about what you can get out of it, and meanwhile, it's wrecking your life. So enjoy it freely. Don't, don't use sex as a weapon. Don't hold back. Make yourself available to the other person. Yes, even if you have a headache and even if you're tired. Because it's not about what you can get out of it. It's about what you can give. And it's amazing how God's design is best. Now here's the deal. Let me, let me conclude. For many of you as I'm talking about this subject, you're in pain. This, rather than stirring hope and promise, it's stirring regret, shame, and guilt. And I want you to know this, in God, Jesus has cleansed your past, freed you truly from regret and shame. And when you believe in Jesus by faith, you are transformed and given a promise of a future. 
a future defined by selfless love. And so I want to encourage you right now, would you pause and would you allow God's spirit to speak to your spirit? What does he want to say to you right now? Can can I encourage you? Would you just take a moment, maybe even right now, across all of our campuses, would you just close your eyes for a moment and say, God, what do you want to speak to me? I believe for many of you here, God wants to heal you. Regret is from the enemy of your soul. Guilt is a lie. God wants to bring healing and forgiveness and a promise of hope for a future. And so right now, how can you say yes to God through faith in Jesus? How can you receive healing through faith in Jesus? How can you allow God's spirit to transform your past? And now I want to I wanna take a moment, I want to pray over you. I, I believe there are many of you, as you hear this message, you want to say yes to Jesus. And I want you to take hold of that right now. I'm going to say yes to Jesus. For others of you, you need God to heal you right now. And so I want to pray over you. Would you, just, would you just allow me to pray with you right now? Jesus, I pray that across each of our campuses, those that are joining us online, those that are going to watch this message later, Lord, that you would, you would meet them in a powerful way, that your spirit would heal their brokenness, forgive them of their shame, remove the pain, and give them new life through faith in you. God, I pray that they would not walk out of here offended by what was said, but full of promise and hope. God, that they would leave knowing that you love them and your selfless love is chasing them down to give them new life. And so, God, we receive your love. We receive your forgiveness. We receive your healing. We do not carry shame. We do not carry guilt. We ask that you would cleanse and you would forgive us. God, you would also heal and transform us. And we receive that right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church, located in Hagerstown, Maryland. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.